Have you ever looked at the Sermon on the Mount and tried to actually do the things that Jesus mentions there? How did it go for you? Have you given up yet? Have they become your natural response? In this episode, I want to give you a basic summary of what I think is going on in the Sermon on the Mount and why you might need to change the way you see and approach this text. We're all formed by our life experiences, but sometimes these experiences shape us in negative ways. And the process of spiritual transformation can help undo those negative impacts so we can live life to the fullest. And walking closer is all about this journey through internal transformation where real changes happen from the inside out. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode. This is episode 114 and I titled it Living in a State Called Love. So I'm continuing to share with you some things from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And in this episode, we're going to cover chapters 5, 6, and yes, even a part of chapter 7. See, these chapters basically deal with the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I thought instead of going into all the details of what Willard says, I want to kind of summarize what I think is going on in the Sermon on the Mount and maybe why doing these uh, things might seem impossible or hard to do. Now, Willard goes into a tremendous amount of detail in these chapters, but I want to just share with you what I have taken from it all. It's more like the bigger picture that these chapters have helped me see. Now, you could read these chapters and get into great detail in trying to understand some of the things that are being said there, and Willard does an extremely good job with that. But I really want to just share with you what I have taken away from that and how that has kind of helped mold and shaped my perspective on what I believe is going on with the Sermon on the Mount. And then actually the next episode, I want to dive into a little something a little bit deeper that Willard talks about in chapter 7 and addressing the idea of prayer. I have a few things that I want to share uh, with you concerning that. So now uh, today I want to just, well, let's just simply focus on just the, the bigger picture, I think, of what is going on here with the Sermon on the Mount. Now the first thing we need to take notice of is the people to whom Jesus is speaking. And that, I believe, will help us see what Jesus is doing. So let me take you back in to the time in which is uh, Jesus is giving these teachings. Jesus has just separated 12 disciples and named them apostles. And he comes to this area where a large number of his disciples had gathered along with a vast multitude. Luke says it that way uh, from Luke chapter 6. Uh, verses 17 through 19, specifically. He says there's this vast multitude along with you know, large number of his disciples from all over Judea and the seacoast. And he goes on to tell us that uh, um, they came here to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured. He says the whole crowd was trying to touch him because... Power was coming out from him in healing them all. The first thing notice is the people. Many of these people represent those who are suffering from serious health issues. And you can understand the pervading thought during this time was that if you found yourself suffering from some ailment, it meant God was not pleased with you, like you had fallen out of favor with God. So you have all these people who had been 
led to believe that they were not good enough, were not worthy of God's blessing, and yet they had been touched, experienced in some way uh, what they believed was the power of God. And by Jesus reaching in and addressing these issues and touching them in, in this way, you understand, he wasn't saying, oh, I, I think God got this wrong. Actually, you're fine in this judgment. It, it was a mistake. Things Jesus wasn't saying things that got kind of mixed up at HQ. He was... He was actually saying something quite the opposite. See, he was demonstrating how the scale that was being used to stack things up against them was wrong. That their ailments were not indications of where they stood with God, but that God was aware and there with them. And that their thinking about how all this works was twisted and wasn't right. And Now, now think about it. If you were led to believe that your ailment, the thing you were suffering from, was God's judgment upon you, what would you be thinking if the ailment was removed? Like, it would be apparent to you that there was something divine behind the healing, especially if you lived during this time. Like, you would be thinking that, see, only God can do something like this. So what does this mean? Like, what does this say about me? And then what about all the other people who knew you or knew of you and maybe who had passed judgment on you thinking that you, there was something wrong with you, that you, God was unhappy with you. They would have judged you in the same way, but yet they're watching you and they're, they're seeing what's happening to you. Maybe they have their own questions about like what's going on. Like things, maybe, 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 maybe this was an illustration of how, you know, things, things weren't working out the way that people thought they would work out. Like things weren't working according to the way that they were led to believe that they work. Things weren't functioning the way that they thought things would function. So what is going on? What does this say? What is this saying about things, about reality? And then that's what Jesus begins to explain in the Sermon on the Mount. See, because by pointing to this issue and explaining what's going on, and then this is not something that will be easy to see, okay, if you approach this text legalistically. And I, I've addressed this fully through the Beatitudes in the last episode, so I, I'll just use one example here. Because typically when we look at this, I think we're looking for things that we're supposed to do that will make us blessed or cause us to be blessed. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not what's going on here. So, for instance, look at Matthew 5, 3, where Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we typically look at this verse, and because we're looking for things we're supposed to do, we define poor in spirit in such a way that it seems like a good thing, a good condition to be in. But here's the problem. The word poor literally means utter destitution. See, this is, this is not a condition you want to find yourself in. This is not a favorable condition. When we're talking about the a deplorable condition, a condition in which you are ignorant of spiritual matters. You, you don't look at this as something God supposedly requires or desires of you, okay? This person is not blessed because they're poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit does not qualify you for the kingdom. However, they are blessed, he says, because even though they find themselves in such a condition, they have been touched by God. Like They are filled with joy, are blessed because their eyes are being opened to the reality that the kingdom is being made available to them. Now, remember, these would have been people who were led to believe that God was not pleased with them. They were not worthy of his blessing. Probably judged themselves based on the same standard. But Jesus has shown them otherwise. And what they have been shown is that 
divine care, provision, concern, compassion, love was for them. In fact, Jesus shows that it's available to everyone and that his availability wasn't because of something they had or had not done. It simply just was. And what Jesus was doing was opening their eyes to its availability. It's, it's why he said to repent or change your thinking. And this is another one of those ideas. The idea of repentance is, is another thing we need to understand. Okay, Repentance is not an apology or a confession, although the process of repentance may naturally lead you to feel the need to do those things. But repentance is, is changing the way you think about something, a situation, a scenario, an idea. The process of thinking about how things different, the process of thinking, about things differently leads to our eyes being open to seeing things differently. And seeing things differently leads to doing things differently. And it doesn't mean that there won't be some tension, right, from bad habits, etc. But we are at least able to be intentional about what we are doing based on what we see. And that's the idea of repentance. And it's a little bit about the process there, although I would argue that it's it's way more in-depth and maybe more, way more complicated than that. But at the end of the day, understanding that repentance is the idea of changing your mind. The, uh, back in the day, the old preachers used to say it's, changing your, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Okay, and we're talking about a true, a true change of mind, and that's tricky because we can lie to ourselves and fool ourselves into believing that we have actually changed our mind about something. But listen, you can pretend or you can think that you have, but yet you haven't owned it. Okay, the action that comes from a change of mind is a very natural reaction. That's ultimately the goal there, because when you're changing your mind, you're not just changing behavior; you're changing. The person who does that behavior, whether it's good or bad, okay? And you're changing, the goal here is to change the person into someone who would naturally do these things that Jesus talks about here. So remember, Jesus is, is leading people on a journey of repentance, of thinking about things differently. And he does this by pointing to what they are seeing, experiencing, and using that to explain, to show, and say, see, this is what this means. Change the way you're thinking about how all this works. And then Jesus continues on with the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about the, the kind of life that is possible. Okay, And in order to see that this life is possible, obviously they have to begin by changing the way they think. You change the way you think, you change the way you see things. You change the way you see or what you see uh, that is possible. And so he he literally now begins to use illustrations that would have been relevant to these people. And in doing so, he hits at what what's often at the core of some pretty nasty stuff, okay, and that people find themselves in the middle of. Uh, for instance, Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 through 44, notice this. 21 through 26, he deals with rage and anger and contempt and hatred and revenge and suing and obsessive lust and divorce in verses 27 through 32 and verses 33 through 42, manipulation and coercing and retaliation and begging, etc. And and again, these are just some, some illustrations that he pulls out and uses. He could have used more things, sure. But what's really interesting throughout all of this is that he, he demonstrates a different way of responding. Okay, And so when we see this, we immediately begin to think, this is what we need to do. However, I think that approach just leads to more failure. And when you think about these situations and how extremely difficult it would be in the middle of them, 
right? To force your will to respond differently. I call that near impossible, okay? Besides, you can't make yourself love someone, especially not your enemies. Yet Jesus says to love them, right? And, and, but I think that that's, that's the heart behind all these circumstances. He is talking about what it looks like when someone actually loves, when someone actually wills the best of the other in various situations, okay? And it's a picture of what it looks like when you're living from a place of love and joy. And again, the fact that it's possible because if it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have said in verse 45, do this so that you may be like your father in heaven. Or verse 48, he goes on to say, so then be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I don't actually like the word perfect here because of what the term means to us. It's got a little bit of baggage there. And I think I do prefer the, to translate the word complete, kind of. At the very least, I think that's a better way to do it because it, it may invite further clarification as to what what's being said there. Like, what does that mean to be complete? See, the word translated perfect here has to do with something that has that is bought to its end. It's finished, has reached maturity is another way of saying it. It's like something that is being worked on and all along the way it takes on various forms until it finally has reached its final form, which is what it was intended to be all along. It's taken to its full completion. And again, in order for this to become a reality, okay, they, they have to change their thinking about how all this works. And so Jesus addresses how they were led to believe it all works and how it actually works and what's actually possible. And again, I'll just give you, give you a rundown here. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus says, listen, it's not about your religious or moral reputation. He says, so it's not about displaying your righteousness to be seen by others. And then he uses examples, common ways in which this was done during that time through charitable giving and praying and fasting. And then he goes on to say that it's not about your possessions or your wealth, verses 19 through 34, understanding that in their minds, these were the things that demonstrated you were in God's favor. Then he says in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, that it's not about trying to control or manipulate others, blaming and condemning them. See, because this is actually what has led to so many thinking that they were not worthy, that God was not available to them. And so simply put, it's about following Jesus, who shows us what it looks like to, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and righteousness. And by doing so, we come to see and actually experience what is possible when we grow to actually entrust our lives, how we live this life to God. And that's what being a disciple of Jesus does. And so you, you could say that the solution here is found in seeking first the kingdom and righteousness, and you might ask, what does it mean or look like to seek first the kingdom and righteousness? And I guess there are a few things we could talk about and a few different ways we could explain it. But quite honestly, I don't care how you go about trying to talk about this. I think no matter where you start or what trail you go down in fleshing all of this out, ultimately, it all comes down to the pursuit of love. It comes down to love, okay? And you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is something that Dallas mentions towards the end of chapter 5. And I think it, it, it just just best to maybe just quote him here. Now, Dallas mentions this because it's commonly approached the same way the Sermon on the Mount is approached. And I don't think it's a coincidence, though, 
that it is ultimately the solution here. So Dallas says, love. Paul there tells us is patient and kind, free of jealousy and arrogance. It's not rude or self-seeking. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrongs. It takes no joy in things that are wrong, but instead what is true. It always protects, always accepts, always hopes and endures everything, and it never quits. People usually read this and are taught to read it as telling them to be patient, kind, free of jealousy, and so on just as they read Jesus' discourse as telling them to not call others fools, not looking on a woman to lust, not swear to go the second mile, and so forth. But Paul is plainly saying, and look at his words, that it is love that does these things, not us, and that what we are to do is to pursue love. And as we catch love, we then find that these things are are after all actually being done by us. These things, these godly actions and behaviors are the result of dwelling in love. So we have become the kind of person who is patient, kind, and free of jealousy, and so on. So Paul's message is exactly the same as Jesus' message. You see, I think Jesus is illustrating what it looks like to live from a place of love. Like These are natural expressions of that love. And this is what being a disciple of Jesus can lead to. It can lead to a life that is built on a solid foundation, a life that is based on how things have been designed to function, like the wise man who built his house on a rock, Matthew 7, 24, as opposed to the foolishly, as opposed to foolishly building on sand or living a life that is not based on how things have been designed to function, which can ultimately feel like life is being pulled up from underneath you. And I say designed, a life that is designed, the living a life that is you know, in a way that it's designed to function, I say that because Jesus says, listen, all these things hang or hinge on this. The law and the prophets all hang on this. Love. I mean, it's it's what holds it all together. It is the nail on the wall. The prophets and the law could be the picture, and it's hanging on that nail. And it's love. It's love. And so within all of these illustrations that Jesus gives of things that were very relevant to these people and, you know, the typical responses and then these different ways of responding and doing so, Jesus is illustrating how it is possible to respond differently. But it's only possible. See, it's going to seem hard as all get out. It's only possible if you're living from a place of love, right? It's living from a place of, of, of love. And that's why... That's why this, this solid foundation, okay, the, the, this house built on a rock, that solid foundation, what is that? Well, I think that's love. It's following Jesus into a life of love where you are dwelling in love as opposed to foolishly building on sand or living a life that is not based on how things have been designed to function, right? That's not based on, it's not based on love. It's, it's based on, well, one's own desires, one's own passions, one's own will, and a will that is not aligned with God. And when it's not aligned with God, it's not aligned with how things are intended to, intended to function. 
And yeah, it's, it's a life that can ultimately feel like everything's being pulled up from underneath you. And I think this is what we fight so hard against. And it, it's what contributes to a more legalistic approach to life. And, but instead of just trying to do the right thing, how about becoming the kind of person that would naturally do the right thing? A person who is truly living from a place of love or in a state of love. In order for this to happen, we, we must be people who have been transformed in the depths of who we are, which includes our thoughts and feelings and desires and perspectives and so on. I mean, and that's essentially what the Walking Closer podcast is all about. Yeah, so, so yeah, becoming the kind of person who's truly living from a place of love, when we truly are living from a place of love, loving responses will just simply be natural in these situations. So, may you pursue love. And when you catch it, may you find yourself living in a state called love.